week, we will talk about diversity and leadership in data science and AI. And we have a special guest today, Dania. Dania is a co-founder and director at the AI Guild, where she works with companies scaling data analytics and machine learning. She has been a senior expert and mathematician in the field since 2012, doing machine learning for predictive analytics and focusing on marketing use cases. So welcome to today's interview, Dania. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alexei, for inviting me. I, as you mentioned, have known you for some time, and it's the first time that I am on your channel, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, I've been on your channel for like about a couple of times, at least two, I think, right? So yeah, it was about time I returned the favor. It should have been a long time ago, so <laughs> sorry it took so long. <laughs> so the questions for today's interview were prepared by Johanna Bayer. Thanks, Johanna, for your help. So before we go into our main topic of adoption of AI and uh, about diversity, Let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey so far? Yes. So I studied applied math for my bachelor. And when I finished my studies, I moved from my hometown to Rio de Janeiro. So this is all back in Brazil, where I was born. And uh, I worked three years as a marketing analyst. And also I was doing at the same time a master's in computer science. So uh, when I finished my master's, this was 2015. I did a thesis in recommendation systems, motivated by the use cases I saw in marketing with personalization. And also because at the time there was this big uh, data processing framework called Spark, maybe you know it. It was at the time uh, Spark 1.0 replacing Hadoop. So I basically wrote a thesis comparing the implementation with Spark and Hadoop. Sometimes. Yeah, then at this point, I was uh, finishing my master's. I was thinking about uh, working abroad. And it happened that by chance, I got approached via LinkedIn for a job as a data scientist in Berlin. So it was a perfect match. They were looking for someone with my experience exactly. So working with data and predictive modeling for customer behavior analysis. So they offered me the job. They sponsored my, my visa. And then in September 2015, I moved to Berlin. So the first three years working in Berlin, I was in fast-paced environments, international environments, uh, startups, also smaller data teams. So that meant that even though my official uh, job title was data scientist, I did a big range of different tasks. So I did like data engineering jobs, connecting to my previous knowledge with Spark, but I also uh, worked on analysis and I built Tableau dashboards and for sure, I did a lot of machine learning, mostly for forecasting and prediction tasks. So it was a great time to learn all those different skills. You know, I think that uh, helped me build a good foundation to the end-to-end -end data science work. And also, it was good for me to understand what were my strengths. So I enjoyed a lot of this. And at the time, also, because I just didn't plan to move to Berlin specifically, I was dealing with like this personal challenges like learning German and understanding how life works here in Germany. But yeah, it was all about uh, discoveries, I would say, the beginning of my career. Yeah, it's interesting how, like it's a bit different now with data scientists, uh, with the data scientist title, title. Because when I started my career, 
too. Like data scientists meant many different things. So I also got to do analytics, data engineering, machine learning, obviously. But now, yeah, it's more focused, I guess. Right. So yes. maybe in startups, data scientists might still do like all these things. But I think in bigger companies, like we have machine learning engineers, we have data engineers, we have data scientists, we have data analysts. And yeah, I think it's more focused right now. A bit harder to be a generalist right now. Yes, I agree. I think that at the beginning it was easier to be a generalist also because there were not so many tools like we have now. So um, now with the tools, it's easier to get started in a specific area like data engineering, for example. And then from there, really develop your expertise and be deep into the areas of engineering instead of going to deep learning, for example, would be very different with different tools. Okay, so you worked at startups and then uh, you did something else, right? Yeah, so I then I started to understand what I wanted to do and I wanted really to focus on machine learning. Uh, also, given my background in applied math, I really enjoyed the modeling aspect. So I moved to work in like a German company that was more structured, but then I also helped a lot of the definition of the role. And also, I think this is one of the things I saw during my career in the past years, like the evolution of the field also translated in somehow the evolution of my own personal career and what I could contribute to the organizations I was working for to come up with those like better defined roles, understand what were the tools that the field was starting to use and make it a standard. Like for example, now we see that there are consolidation of using cloud tools and even for deployment, we see uh, that there is a lot of companies using the same tools like Docker, Kubernetes. So this kind of thing started to come up as I changed it to another job and then we started implementing this. So yes, my cat is joining us. Yeah, so I think that this was the time that I also started learning that I enjoyed a lot of teaching because I was supporting my junior colleagues and growing to the roles and to understand what were the scopes of the projects and how we could split the tasks based on the strengths of each one in the team. And I was also teaching at a data science bootcamp at the time. So I did this besides my full-time job. And also I did some volunteer work at Data Science for Good in Berlin, which also helped me to get to know other people working in data science, to exchange like work practices and really understand where things were developing to. You said you worked at a bootcamp as an instructor. Yes, exactly. Because I wasn't sure if you said, well, I know your profile in LinkedIn. And I, I remember that you yes. were an instructor. I just didn't hear this time if you were an instructor or a student. Was it first yes. like you started as a student and then became an instructor or immediately? No, I was just an instructor. And uh -huh. I did uh, mainly a SQL crash course for weekends and I did it for two years and a half. I also supported with other classes like Git or Bash Script. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the main one that I was teaching was always SQL because it's also the first thing I learned in my first job as soon as I graduated. You know, as a marketing analyst, the job was basically get data from SQL and build reports or build analysis or do simple regressions. And I felt like this was not at all covered like in courses in universities. Now you have a lot of online courses, but back in 2012, Coursera was not a thing yet. But even on Coursera... Like, I think Coursera started, but like, I don't remember any with SQL courses. I, I think now there are, 
but back then, mm-hmm. yeah, so I think you learn on the job. And yeah. you also mentioned Git and bar scripting. I think this is what many new data scientists struggle with. And you were helping them with these things. Yeah, I think those are like things you learn on the job. And you could be prepared, you know. So I also learned those on the job. Like when I started as an analyst, I didn't work with developers. But as soon as I started working as a data scientist, I worked a lot with backend developers. And they were writing like proper code. And they were doing like this code reviews. And I was like, okay, I never did this before. So even when I was in university, I learned how to do all of that, like in theory, but you work on your thesis basically on your own and maybe your professor is like checking on your stuff, but it's not like when you're doing collaborative work with a team that everyone is developing like in the same base code, you know? So I learned the importance of that because also I had luck that I had very good colleagues that had a lot of patience with me. So I picked up the skills and then as soon as I saw the importance of it, I was like, okay, then we need to spread this knowledge. Maybe it's not in people's heads, even the awareness that this is important. And it kind of helps you be faster and it helps you also adapt to the new workplace if you already know the tool that they're using. And those are quite standard tools. So, yeah. I want to ask you about the AI guild, but I'm wondering if we're missing anything before you know you started that. So probably there is like... Yeah, I think we have a good uh, link because when I was doing data science uh, for social good and when I was teaching at the bootcamp, it was when I started to get to know more people working in the field. And I started learning that all the challenges that I had in my work was not only me, it was not only my company, there were some common struggles, you know, that we shared. One easy or very straightforward thing is that there are not a lot of women in the field, you know, I didn't know a lot of women. I had a few colleagues, but then I had this question, like, can I find more women working in the field? Where are they? Let's reach out to other networks, see if we can learn how to support one another, support more women entering the field. So all of this kind of started this community or this network idea. So we just like got together, for example, when we started with the women group, we started getting together in a company where one of us worked and we had sessions just like talking about our stories and what it is like to be a woman in your company or what kind of tips can you share, you know? And then fast forward to 2018 is when we really broadened this circle and we found more people that wanted to work towards the same goal. So to really embrace this aspect of uh, gender diversity at this point. And then we started then talking about other challenges that were challenges in data science work. For example, we want to have more impact on business. There were many instances that we shared projects like proof of concepts, but they would not be used. They would not get deployed. There were many aspects involving all of this. And the more that we shared about those challenges and we started also learning from each other's uh, failures and learning also what we could do. Yeah, then we started doing this as an official community. So we did monthly dinners initially in Berlin and we were maybe like 20, 30 people getting together, but we did it in a frequent ways. So we would really meet the same people every month, invite new people to join, And we also started to understand that this came together as a support, not only for the technical challenges, but also as a career support. 
So we kind of translated into this question of, okay, do we have different career paths or how do we grow in our own career? And yeah, the idea of the AIDS community was to put people together to find solutions for those challenges. And my point, I think, was to create an environment that was welcoming, that allowed us to talk about our experiences, because I didn't have a solution, or I don't have a solution yet, but I think that if we put our minds together and discuss the topics, we can move forward, you know? So really about like helping each other and helping our, at least our ecosystem around here to grow. And yeah, we launched officially the AI Guild in May, 2019, we created a logo, we launched a website, and until now, our mission is really to advance AI adoption. So that's the point. We want to talk our good experiences, but also about our bad experiences. People know that it's a space that they can ask questions, they can seek for help, because other people in the community have been to similar things. And then we learn from each other, we grow together. And we hope that by like sharing the lessons learned, it's also a way to fast track you know, other people's careers. Yeah. You still have these dinners, right? Yes. yes Every month. We do. Yeah. So we started with the dinners and then we had COVID. We went to online meetings. But then since last summer, we went back to the dinners in person. And now we have grown outside Berlin. I mean, we are a global community. We have over 2,000 people, but mostly based in Europe. And then it's upon each member in their city to organize the dinner. And for example, here in Berlin, I am one of the co-organizers. We get together with this idea of really networking and getting to know each other and meeting again month by month. So you kind of gain trust of the other people that you meet. Cool. So I know that I was on one of your events. It was like during COVID times when we... Yes. got to know each other it was uh, i think exactly this so uh, talking about good and bad experience and especially you mentioned the link between a poc and deployment i think this is one this was one of the topics that we discussed back then yeah so you do that then you mention another thing so you're also doing career sessions right so you talk uh, about career challenges right on getting like going from academia to industry right that's one of the things you cover yes then I also know you did a, a conference last year, right? Yes. Yeah, so there's a lot going on. Yes. So the monthly dinners is how we started. And we always had the idea to get people together in a bigger group. So we have the local dinners, right? But what about one big event that everyone travels to Berlin, which is where we started, and get to know each other. So we finally managed to do it for the first time last June. It is the Data Lift Summit, and it was really, to me at least, it was a big surprise. So at the same time that we wanted to do it since we started in 2019, we were not sure, like, how is this going to work, especially like fresh post-COVID, online events became the normal and it was comfortable. And you get to know people from doing this kind of calls online or watching them on YouTube. We never met in person, right? <laughs> we should yeah, sure. we were Yeah, we were like... Do people really want to meet in person? I don't know. Maybe we're still a bit afraid. Like people are still getting, uh, starting to get the shots for the protection of everyone. We were like, okay, let's do it in summer because then we can do it in more open spaces. Maybe it's safer and maybe then, by then more people get access to the vaccine. 
And yeah, we sold out. We had 300 tickets. We sold out all the tickets. It was really amazing to see how the community was looking forward to be together in the same space and meet like face to face, you know, and it was a huge learning for me how to organize this. I had never done anything in person, but I really had an easy time, let's say, to find speakers because our community people really want to share what they have been through their knowledge. And this was the easy part. So the speakers was the easiest part. I had more than 50 speakers. And then we were not sure if people would want to join for the event, but especially after uh, or the two months before the event, we were able to sell all the tickets and it was a really nice get together, like cool atmosphere for people that were both entering the field, but over 40% of our audience are people in the mid-level of their careers. So they are between years two and three. And we also have a lot of people in the community that are over five years of experience. Maybe they are even uh, founders of their own startups. So there was a good match for people that wanted to like get career advice and people that maybe were looking to expand their team you know? yeah are you doing this the summit this year yes we are doing it again this year in berlin in june and now i can do a plug we still have a call for speakers open until the end of this month so end of february yeah so yeah if somebody wants to speak hurry up yes I should also take a look. You, yeah, exactly. You are yeah. also invited to now present live in person. Cool. Okay, and I want to go a little bit back to the time when you said that uh, you noticed that like there are not a lot of women in the field and you wanted to reach out to more women and you started organizing meetups in one of the companies where you worked and you had sessions where you talked about different challenges. So I wanted to ask you what did you discuss on these challenges? What were the topics? How did you come up with these topics? Yes, so this is something that started as my own curiosity. So I was kind of selfish, you know, I wanted to find answers for myself in my career. And this is, I think, what everyone does, um, maybe not intentionally, but you look up to other people, right? You see what they have done and you think, okay, could I do the same if I want to be where this person is? And I couldn't really find um, a woman that was in the successful in the field of data science around here in Berlin. So it was not easy to find. And because if I could see this person, I would go them there and ask them, you know, how did you do this? Or I'm going through this, do you have any tips? So that was the first thing that motivated me. Like, how can I do it for myself? I didn't really find someone specifically, but I found a lot of other women that were also around here and they had different experiences. So for example, I was working as a full-time data scientist, but there were people that were doing teaching, people that were volunteering. So that's also what I started to understand that you could do besides your full-time job. There were others that were freelancers. There were others that were uh, founders. So the first event that we did was really career options. So that was the title, like career options. And I put together a panel that I was the interviewer. So I, I had my own questions, right? So I created an event to ask them my own questions about the careers that they chose and really to talk about like, what is it that you do and why do you think that you chose this career? So we had someone doing research, someone doing freelance, someone working full-time as team lead. 
and it was really about you no know, tell us what you do and why you chose this career and what can you tell others like maybe pros and cons of choosing this career and it became a discussion and from that first one we learned that there were a lot of other things that people wanted to know so we decided okay let's have a list of different topics and then each month we can do one of those topics but yeah that's how it started i really wanted answers for myself yeah that's a pretty nice way to find answers right you organize a panel and then you find people who have answers and you ask them and yeah yeah, yeah. and they were really happy you know to like do this for other women because yeah we don't see so many women and like maybe you know one or two and then another person knows another one or two so with that we got to 30 you know so that was pretty cool mm -hmm. Do you think the situation is better now in Berlin in terms of um, gender diversity? Yes, I do. So I think my last full-time job, we had a team that was 50-50. We had the same amount of men and women, for example. But yeah, I have been to job interviews in which I got only interviewed by men. And I don't know, it feels different, you know? And I don't think it's only gender diversity. I mean, this is the main point. I think it's easy to see, but what I think is also unique here in Berlin is the internationality. So we have people from like different countries that live here together. And especially in startups, people come to Berlin to work here and like the language is English, but you can hear like people maybe speaking Spanish in one corner, people speaking Russian in another corner, and we're all here. You know? So I think this uh, creates a very welcoming environment that you don't feel like you're the outsider, like everyone is an outsider. So we're all together in the same boat. That's the beauty of Berlin. Yeah. You can feel at home, even though it's technically not your home. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I guess one thing is, uh, like you said, situation improved and you had 50-50 gender diversity, like 50-50 gender representation in one of mm -hmm. your last companies. But maybe because this is how you chose companies. Could it be the case? Yes. So as I mentioned, I had been to interviews in which I only had like male people uh, interviewing me. Even there was one that was really strange. So this was back in the time that you had to go to the company to interview. And all the people that I saw there were non-females. And I was like, I mean, do they even have like women's bathroom? Because there's only guys here. You know? But yeah, I think this has to do not only with the company that I chose, but also maybe how the company positions themselves. And the type of, maybe this is independent of your gender, of your background or your nationality, but also the culture or like the work environment, the atmosphere itself, that could be more welcoming to people that have different ways of thinking, you know? Like diversity is also in this way. For data science, we have diversity of backgrounds, like people that study, I don't know, economics or computer science or psychology can be working as data scientists, but also, yeah, different ways of thinking. So diversity here means many things. Gender diversity is only one, visible aspect right but there are also diverse in nationality diversity we all come from different places in the world and then also background diversity so some people come from i don't know physics mathematics some pe people come from computer science some people come from economics some people come from i don't know social sciences and this is another aspect of diversity other aspects on well, this i guess the main ones right 
Yeah, I think those are the main ones. There are other aspects like neurodiversity, but yeah, those are more specific topics or even more difficult to address. Yeah. What is that? Neurodiversity is for people that are different in ways of thinking. So they could uh -huh. be, for example, uh, introverts and they could be uh, in some spectrum. Yeah. I see. Yeah, there are these uh, personality types, right? Yeah, different ways to communicate or different ways that they are motivated to do work or even that they communicate to others that might not mm -hmm. be the norm or what we know as norm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm wondering what are the pitfalls? Uh, why can't I just go to, I don't know, to you Berlin and hire all white dudes to work on this? Like mm -hmm. from computer science department from the same group, just take all of them and uh, have them work. Like, isn't it enough to have a successful company? Yeah, I think it could be enough at some point. I don't think that it's not successful, you know, but I do think that there is a limitation when you do that because you are basically building something for the world and the world is a diverse place. And you're building something that addresses only one group, that is the group that built this. So it's hard when you don't experience the world through the lenses of the others that you perceive also what is that they are facing and how is it that they understand the world. So what challenges they have and what solutions they could enjoy, you know? So that is one aspect, but also like if you really think code as a company that is trying to sell more and make more money, then you want to broaden your audience, you know? And you, on the other hand, you also don't want to exclude anyone. So you're basically missing the opportunity, the business opportunity, when you just uh, do something for a specific group. So you do something from a specific group that addresses only one specific group. Yeah. That's the main advantage of diversity, right? So when you don't build usually for a specific group, so you need to have different opinions, different voices in the team. And then somebody can say, look, but like this actually is strange, right? So why did you do this? And then you start a discussion and uh, like something happens at the end. Yes, exactly. It's really about, again, it's not only about having those people, like hiring them on paper, but really about creating this environment in which everyone can collaborate and people feel that they are heard, that they can speak up. And then this exchange starts to happen and then things start to come up because it's really hard for you to understand what other people are going through when you are not having their experience. For example, there is one reported thing on uh, the book called Lean In that is for the, from the formal COO from Facebook. So she used to be like the right hand of Mark Zuckerberg and she's a woman. So before she was pregnant, she writes in her book that they did not have any special parking spaces in the office for pregnant women. and this never happened to go through her mind or to Mark's mind. So that was it. And then she became pregnant and she was going to work normally. And then she realized that she had her own spot because she was like the CEO, the second most important person in the company. But then uh, other women were having to like find a parking spot wherever far away and then walk all the way to the building, you know more stress for them and also like with the weight of the baby it becomes really something that makes a difference in your day and then he got pointed out 
because someone was late for a meeting or something. And then they said, yeah, I mean, I didn't want to take the stairs. So I had to wait for the elevator. And I came from this other building because my car was there and so on. And then she was like, yeah, I have been through this and I am a woman and I should have known better, but it like never crossed her mind because it was not her experience. No, but someone was able to talk to her about it because she was also pregnant. And then they were like, yeah, I don't have a specific parking space that is for me here that I don't have to walk so much. And it's like, okay, then we have to change it. And of course, as a COO, she could change the policy and she could make an amount of parking spaces available. But yeah, this is the kind of thing that will only come up when we can uh, talk about things and talk about our challenges and really point out, oh, what about this or what about that? And again, I don't think anyone has a right answer, but just by discussing this, we can figure out something that is probably more complete or addresses more uh, people. How do you create this environment? An environment in which I can approach a COO and not being afraid of, uh, you know, asking about these things or just not being afraid of or feeling comfortable discussing these things yeah. with your colleagues who are maybe like they're not from the same background as you. I don't know. It's like yes. maybe you're not, I don't know, with males, for example. Like, how do you do mm -hmm. this? Especially it's like yeah. if, when there are a lot of males with computer science background, it must be difficult. Yeah, I think it's not something that just happens. You know, mm -hmm. it's not something that it's overnight as well. So I do think it takes deliberate work and it takes time. So the first thing I would say is to communicate or like the leaders at least should clearly say like, we want to hear from you. Also, they need to express that this is something that they're open to, but also, you know, the best example I believe is the example by doing. So if you start as a leader, if you start sharing, then uh, maybe others feel comfortable sharing back. And as also a person that is from an underrepresented group in our field, I don't feel comfortable most of the time to just raise my hand and say like, this is wrong, you need to fix this, you know, like maybe it's really about sharing and it's like, this is how I experienced this and this is how it makes me feel. And maybe there's a way that we can improve it. And maybe I have ideas because I have been treated differently in different spaces. So I could bring also my good and bad experiences. But yeah, I don't think that also demanding for things is the right way to do it. But yeah, really like engaging in a conversation. And specifically, if you are in a situation or a position of power, to do it yourself and make sure that people know that you are open for this. And I think it starts maybe with one or two people, but as long as like new people join and they see that this is the atmosphere, they won't have this fear from the beginning. And is it something, well, I know you told us the story how AI Guild started. So you started as uh, you had these uh, meetups, these sessions where you wanted to connect with other women in the field and then eventually it grew to dinners and then the Guild itself. So probably this was one of the very important aspects of the guild. So you wanted to make it diverse. You wanted to have different people in the community. Yes. Do you help companies recognize that and, uh, I don't know, build such environment where everyone, like everyone's opinion is welcome? Yes. So it is something that we discussed in our community. Like how could we approach organizations, right? Because as individuals, we can do so much. 
we have our limitations also based on our roles inside the organizations. And that's when we decided we had a survey for our members at the guild, how we could address this together with businesses. And then most of the people decided to do for-profit organizations, so that is consulting. And this is the work that I do full-time, so supporting the community, but also funding the community through B2B consulting. And we don't do like diversity-based consulting, but it is our focus is really about uh, deployment. So machine learning to production, understanding companies where they are in this journey, let's say from proof of concept to production. And that is not only on the technical aspect, like we do some consulting based on the models or the data pipelines or the architecture, yes. And uh, one feedback we got from company or company client is that they like doing this with us because we are diverse in the aspect of technology. So we are not a vendor. You know? So we are not trying to push one specific solution. We are vendor agnostic. We are independent consultants. So in that way, we could explore a diversity of solutions. But then there is the aspect of there you need people to implement all of this, right? So you need to hire and you need to maybe structure a new team or expand the team you already have. And that is the aspect that we can then talk more about this aspect of diversity. And for example, one of the last clients we had was consulting company in Germany for a very traditional um, area in finance. So that means traditionally, yes, a lot of Germans and especially males. So we were doing recruitment and training for entry-level data roles. And our goal was to have a group that was at least 40% women. And this is also our uh, gender policy for the data lift event, for example, the one we are doing in June. So we say 40% because we also don't want to have like only women, right? The point is to be diverse. And then we also had a goal to have at least 25% of people that were non-natives. Even though one of the restrictions for the role is to speak a fluent German or German at a proficient level because of the nature of working in finance, having a lot of legislation and so on. Must be a tricky one. Yes, we really had to look into different talent pools, let's say. So you mentioned maybe we don't go to just one university, we go to different universities that also have programs that are taught in English and then people come to study in English, then they learn German when they are here. In the end, it was a very good result. So we didn't really have the final say. So the decision maker was in the end the company that was hiring them. We were only doing the recruitment and training, but we managed in the end to find a pool from uh, 10 people in which uh, five were women. And from the 10 people, eight were non-native. So we had mostly international uh, representation there. Yeah, I was really happy about this. Okay. So how did you approach this? Uh, I mean, maybe this one is a tricky case when you need to find uh, people who are fluent in German in Berlin. I guess that's oh, yeah. not a... <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> yeah, that was not in Berlin. So this, ah, okay. was, um, this was in Hamburg, but still in Germany. 
But yeah, some people were not, so the training happened in Hamburg and they had to be there for the training, but they didn't need to move to Hamburg. So maybe they were also in different uh, places because then the work itself would be done remotely as well, but yeah. Hamburg is a pretty international city too, right? Yes. Maybe not as cosmopolitan as Berlin, but still. Yes. Okay, but I'm wondering, um, so you managed to hire five women and I know that it's not easy too. Like if I look, uh, I was uh, on a meetup recently, uh, PyData meetup. And there it was like, I don't know how many people, 40 maybe, and only two women or three women, I don't remember. So like, it just shows, uh, well, it shows like this particular sample maybe is biased, right? So not everyone goes to meetups, but still like if you look at the, the general population, uh, now maybe things are better than five years ago, but still. Where do you find women if you want to have a diverse team? Yes, again, it's something that you have to do intentionally. It won't just happen. So what I can share is like the policy we have for our events is that we invite women first and we invite women to be on stage. So we make visible to women that could be attending that there will be other women, at least a speaker, you know, because this is something that I have been through already. You go to a meetup because you're interested in the topic and you arrive there and it's only a bunch of dudes and you're like, okay, who can I talk to? Or, you know, uh, sometimes you don't want to be approached in the wrong way. So it's tricky. And also it's hard if you're doing it for the first time, you know, you don't know anyone. So as a woman, I can say one, it's really good when you know that there's another woman going. So maybe you can ask a colleague, you know, like I'm going, let's go together. Maybe if you know that the speaker is a woman, then you know that at least you can approach her uh, towards the end. So that helps. And this is something that we did also for this training. And also what I uh, participated at the bootcamp, I was hired as one of the women teaching because they wanted to have more women applying. So putting women in invisibility roles gives visibility in general for anyone applying for that event or for that initiative in a way that they know, okay, one, I will not be the only one. And second, it also sends the message that the organization cares about this because they are making it visible. And I think it's the same for all the other underrepresented groups, not only for uh, women. And this is something you did uh, at AI Guild from the very beginning. I guess at the beginning, it was even yes. only women, right? So um, before it was called the AI Guild, we had this women meeting. But then when we called it AI Guild, I brought all the women from this women meeting. And that in the beginning made it really like equal 50-50. As mm. we grew, it started to grow a lot more on the male side. So it became unbalanced. So the way to fix this or try to keep it up was that I intentionally invited women. So every woman I got to know in the field, I invited to the AI Guild personally. And this is something I still do, like everywhere I go, if I, I try also and attend other events from groups dedicated to women, for example, women in machine learning and data science or Pi ladies, and those are safe spaces for women. So when you go there and you also like present them with the opportunity to speak, for example, then they also, they have, those communities are really for encouraging women to go to those visibility roles to really step up in their careers. So when you go there and then you can tap into this pool that is being prepared for it, you know, it becomes easier as well. But yeah, the policy is that we invite women to be speakers and we invite women first 
so that we can like fill some roles with women and then it becomes easier also when we invite more women to speak that they see that there are already women speaking so it's like a snowball effect mm -hmm. yeah that's smart and uh, i'm wondering so we're talking here not about gender diversity but uh, diversity in general and if somebody is a part of underrepresented group and want to like get promoted or take the next step in their career how can they take on leadership roles do you have any suggestions any advice for them yes so i think one of the ways i did it like i'm still on the journey right so and i don't have all the answers but one of the ways i found really helpful for me to grow in my career is to find other people find your network you know you don't have to do it alone or you are not alone there are others there that maybe share the same challenges or have been to similar things and you can learn from them and also once you have some experience you can also help people that are in the beginning of their careers and also there's always this exchange aspect that i think helps and then uh, the other thing is to not be afraid to be visible you know maybe there is like you go to the meetup there's no other woman and then you never go again and then maybe next time when you don't go another one goes. so if you just keep on going or you know reach out invite people then it starts building this snowball effect but you really have to i don't know step up and keep doing it until it grows so that's why i said it takes time and it's also not something that will happen if you just go like you need to do something more you know like invite others or even be the speaker so you are visible and others see you and come yeah i think those are the most practical things to share but also on another level more like for organizations maybe you want to look for organizations that already have a leadership that is more diverse or that are working towards making this visible for their brand so there are some companies that are visible for having a diverse or collaborative workspace so you can find out about this and i believe those would be the best ones to start with and one of the things you said uh, not be afraid to be visible but i guess for that you need to have the right environment right Maybe you don't want to be visible in some environments. Right? And then this is, I guess, something for the meetup organizers yeah. to make sure that you know the environment is welcoming for people not to be afraid to be visible. And this is something you did, right, in AI Guild? This is something that if you are an organizer or if you are uh, somehow the leader in the initiative, you should have a code of conduct. Yeah, so with the code of conduct, then it's really about describing what is the expected behavior in your inside your initiative and what is unexpected behavior and what are the consequences of the unexpected behavior. And this was one of the first things we did at the AI Guild because we really wanted to protect the environment in a way that is pleasant for anyone. And people are also getting excited to go there, you know, because you know that it's not only about people sharing the good parts, but it's also about sharing the bad parts and sharing what we learn becomes more real. Maybe I'm wrong and I see this uh, code of conduct as like privacy policy on the websites, something that people do just because they have to. I might be wrong. I know yeah. in your case it was different, right? So because you saw, you thought of this from the very beginning. I'm not mm -hmm. saying others do this as a check mark, but mm -hmm. I imagine that it can be sometimes like that. I guess it's not enough just to have the code of conduct. Yeah you have to have the code of conduct and 
leave the code of conduct. You know, mm -hmm. so yeah, as for example, when we thought about it, there is a famous one, the Berlin Code of Conduct. So we started from this one, we took it as an example, and it's published online. And a lot of the meetups, even on meetup.com, for example, they say that our event follows the Berlin Code of Conduct. And the idea was to take from those examples and also from our own experiences, what we expect from people when they, let's say, go to an AI Guild dinner and what is unacceptable behavior and what are the consequences and how can people report those behaviors. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes tricky when you're there at the meetup and then you see someone doing the unexpected behavior. What do you do? You know, like Now you really have, like as the community organizer or the leader, you really have to address it. You cannot um, run away from it. You cannot hide from it. Because, yeah, by hiding from it, then for one, you're giving permission to this unexpected behavior. People that were there, they maybe don't want to join anymore because they experienced it. But also you're saying that, yeah, it's just like a checkbook, you know? So, yeah, it happened. Unfortunately, I have to say it happened. Uh, we had to deal with unexpected behavior and we also had to make clear that this was not acceptable and tell the person to never come again to our events, you know. It's hard because you also want to give people a second chance, right? Maybe people are not aware. So there are some specific cases you really have to like have some values or have maybe some lines that cannot be crossed, you know. But mm -hmm. in the end, what you are doing is you're really protecting the environment so that people can keep enjoying this and leveraging the community for what it was made for, which is exchanging experiences and knowledge. I guess it's uh, really tricky when like you need as an organizer, you need to understand like, okay, like did this person really cross a lot of lines so they cannot show up anymore? Or maybe like it's not a hopeless case and we just need to speak and explain like, that this is not acceptable. So how, how do you do this? Well, yeah, like maybe you don't want to, like maybe they just not aware, like sometimes, you know, because we are mm -hmm. all coming from different backgrounds, from different cultures yeah. and some cultures, some behavior might be okay, or at yes. least like uh, exactly not frowned upon. Yeah, so that's tricky, right? And this is a big challenge when we are talking about this diversity aspect in terms of culture or nationalities. No, like in different countries, you have different behavior that is accepted or not accepted. So that's what I mean with like the hard line. Some things you don't accept. Like if someone is, I don't know, yelling or like cursing the other, mm. that is global, right? Yeah, that's so clear, yeah. But some things are more subtle mm -hmm. and you'll never know also, as the uh, person that is receiving it, you also don't know what was the intention maybe, you know, maybe the person didn't have the intention, but it was. So it's not easy. I think it's case by case that you need to understand. But one thing that definitely helped is that uh, we got reports from the same behavior of the same person towards different people. So this was not a one-off behavior. You know, it was mm -hmm. someone that was doing it with different people through some uh, time period. And that's when we said, okay, uh, it's worth talking to this person. But at this point, there was a lot of damage done already. So, yeah. I guess this is something you, at least in my experience, so I didn't need to deal with this in real life, but in Slack quite often. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think about this when starting the Slack community, right? So it's mm -hmm. like, and then like the reason we actually had to have a code of conduct was that there wasn't inappropriate behavior. 
right? And then like, how could we point to this person that this behavior is appropriate? And then of course, like we need to have this uh, guidelines, this code of conduct. And then, yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, at some point, we'd even discussed it if everyone needed to like sign, you know, like when you apply to become an AI Guild member, you mm -hmm. apply and we just want to protect the community from people that are not in the field, like recruiters. Or... So we do this sign up form, but we also thought, should we ask people like to sign or like check that they read the code of conduct? And then in the end, we said, no, it's more about if you want to be active and participate, you will read it. If you don't read it, then it was always there. No, so it's your part as an active community member to be aware of it. And if you do something that you were not aware of because you didn't read it, then it's really on you. So mm -hmm. we expect also we trust everyone. Like we start from this based on a trust behavior, right? That people really want to be part of a community and they don't want to be toxic and break the community. So I don't think anyone is doing that for intentionally but still you can always refer to the code of conduct and see maybe what is uh, expected and unexpected my own experience is even if you like point to the guidelines 100 times very few people actually read it but, but i think in your community is different because it's more like it was growing from in-person events rather than you know just like community that where everyone yes. can can join it's like spammers don't read code of conduct <laughs> just yes. come to spam yeah, exactly. And it's like you offer people the opportunity to read it, but they will only read it if they want. You cannot force them. So, yeah. yeah, it's like this license agreement, right? That you, when you install oh, yeah. something or, I don't know, accept cookies or whatever, right? It's like... Yeah, yeah, you accept. And if you don't read, then you know, like, cannot complain after. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering how many people actually read these license agreements. Yeah, I mean, I think I was in at least two or three conversations about having some sort of AI to go through it and transform it into like human readable stuff, you know, or at least summarize the most important things because yeah, no person reads everything. Yeah. <laughs> and these privacy policies are the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So that's why in our code of conduct, we really try to make it practical, you know, like what are examples of things that you shouldn't say and examples of things that you cannot say at any case. And if you see someone saying it, what can you do? Okay, so I wanted to talk a bit more about the guild. So you say right now the way, like you're a for-profit organization and uh, you offer consulting, right? So how does it work? You companies approach you saying that, hey, we want to deploy some models, uh, help us, something like that? Yeah, so the idea is really that we are first a community and we want to exchange experiences. And from that, we also learn a lot from our members. And the idea is that when someone is having some issue, they can come to us through the members maybe, or because they attended one of our events, but they can come to us and we can uh, come up with an offer for a solution that will address what they're looking for. And because we are part of this network of more than 2,000 people, we uh, basically can guarantee that we will find someone with the expertise that you're looking for inside our network. And for the community or for the members themselves, um, they have opportunities to contribute to the project. So some people are freelancers, so this is only or this is all they do. But even for people that work in full-time employment, as long as it's allowed, they take on like some trainer role or they take on advisory roles. And in that way, we have the contribution for specific challenges that companies are looking for. 
So the community members do the work, right? So you have like a pool of specialists, experts in certain areas, and then there are companies who need some experts and you sort of match demand and supply, right? Yes, most of the times, because I'm working full-time, so when it's about my own expertise, then I can deliver the projects. But for example, this last one was in finance, banking and payments, and this is not my area of expertise. So I could find in the community people that have worked in banks, for example, that have done, for example, fraud detection cases, and then they were the ones that were advisors. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you work as a consultant, right? So this is your full-time activity right now? Yes. How many people are like you for who it's a full-time activity for the guild to consult? It's me and Chris Armbruster, my co-founder. Mm -hmm. So two. Yes. Do you have different areas of specialization? So it's based on our previous experiences. So I am mostly focused on machine learning and Chris is mostly focused on the career aspects. So mm -hmm. he was a director of a bootcamp before and he's the one that is doing mostly the transition from academia to industry. So he's taking the lead on that. And then on the machine learning and data analytics, I am doing like the technical part of the project, but also the teaching. Hmm. You know. So what Chris is doing is like upskilling people in a company if they need to help with, I don't know, learning a new tool or whatever. Yeah, and we do that for our members as well. Mm -hmm. So we have events uh, for our members. It's for free to attend. I mean, we are mostly doing it in Berlin, but also understanding where other members are in groups that we could put them together in a room and discuss the career topics. And the idea is to do kind of career coaching for uh, two groups. First group is people that are starting their careers, so until the third year. And the other one is for people that are already seniors and looking to grow to leadership roles until you know, chief data officer role. So for that, Chris is mostly taking the lead on the sessions to understand where people are and what they could do to improve their career growth. Yeah, I see an interesting question from Azif. So what if you have too many customers and cannot cope with numbers because it's just too few? Like, how do you do this? Do you start finding somebody in the community to delegate? Yes, yeah, so if we have too many customers, which is my plan for the next years, we will hire people full-time. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's very good. Yeah, yeah. So that is my vision, you know, that we have so many customers that now it's freelance-based and project-based, but if it turns out to be regular incoming, then we can hire people full-time to do it with us. I'm looking forward to seeing job uh, descriptions from you. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and another question from Azif is, can you tell us more about the structure and hierarchy of your company? But I guess if there are just two people, you don't really have a lot of structure. So basically, uh, we do everything and we work together with freelancers or project-based people, as I mentioned. But the idea is that, yeah, Chris is taking on the lead on the career topics and I'm taking on the lead on the use case topics. Okay, maybe last question. Are there any books or other resources that you can recommend to the listeners? Yes. I want to say that the book I always recommend is the, and it's about the impact of not having enough diversity working in data projects, is the Weapons of Mass Destruction. Math, like mathematics, right? Yes, exactly. So the idea is that each chapter is a different example of how harmful or somehow it was applied in a discriminatory way because of different aspects. Maybe the data was 
bias or maybe the application itself is just wrong. But yeah, in this book uh, is by Kathy O'Neill, and she is also someone that is championing this idea of unbiased AI applications. And together with this, she was also in a documentary that is called, I forgot the name. It's a, it was on Netflix. I forgot the name. Oh, you can send us the link and we'll just put it in the show notes. Yes. When you remember the name. I think it was Coded Bias. Coded Bias, okay. Coded Bias. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Very good suggestions. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for sharing your experience with us. Uh, the journey of AI Guild is very interesting. And yeah, finally, I'm happy to return the favor and host you here. Well, better late than never, right? Yes, yeah, <laughs> so... no, it is in a good time because I am now organizing the Data Lift Summit for the second uh -huh. year in June. So this Just is what I want to do. Yes, I want people to be aware of it. Uh -huh. You can get your tickets. You can still apply to be a speaker. If you have a use case in production, this is the content we're looking forward to have on stage. And I hope that you are also on our stage, Alexi. Yeah. Do you accept workshops, proposals? Yes. We have keynote, use case discussions, and workshops. Okay. Then now probably I have something in mind. Cool. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks everyone for joining us today. And yeah, today is Friday. So everyone have a great weekend. Yes. Great weekend. Thank you very much again, Alexi.